I'd like to direct our attention this evening to a portion of Scripture that most of us wouldn't immediately associate with Christmas. It's Revelation chapter 5, Revelation, the last book of the Bible, in chapter 5, and there we have a window into heaven's praise. Imagine if we could get heaven's take on Jesus. Imagine if we could get into if we could get a peek into what heaven thinks about this whole Jesus thing, not just his coming and his birth, but his life and death and resurrection and all that he is and and how heaven and earth should respond. Well, Revelation chapter 5 is just that. It's a behind-the-scenes look of the whole Jesus thing. If we could use the language of C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Revelation 5 is kind of like walking through the wardrobe. It's like peeking into a, a parallel realm. It's like seeing the unseen. And so here's a warning up front before I read from it. We're going to hear and read some strange things on the other side of the wardrobe. Uh, it might get a little more cloudy before it gets clear. Uh, the same rules down here don't necessarily apply up there, even literary rules. But nevertheless, let's read it, and then we'll hear the choir sing about it. And I'll come back up and try to navigate it and apply it for us. Revelation 5, starting in verse 9. You can follow along on the screens. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the th I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Well, if you have a Bible with you tonight, would you turn there to Revelation 5 where we just were as we pick up and carry on for just a bit more. It was A.W. Tozer, a pastor and author in the last century, who said, What we think about when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What we think about when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And we could modify that slightly. I don't think Tozer would mind one bit. To apply it specifically to Jesus. What we think about when we think about Jesus is the most important thing about us. 
So when you hear the name Jesus, what comes to mind? A good moral teacher? Maybe you think of his ethic to turn the other cheek. Maybe you recall a portrait you've seen of Jesus sitting with little children on his lap. Or maybe you're drawn, especially in this season, to one of the scenes happening around the birth of Jesus. The manger, the swaddling clothes, the angels or the wise men arriving to recognize the newborn king. But though these things are all in the Bible, they may not be enough. Whether you're against Jesus or indifferent to Jesus or you're drawn to a particular part of the Jesus story, we have to acknowledge that Jesus is who he is. He will not simply be what we want him to be. And he is all that he is, not one slice of it. Therefore, while we might have our favorite Bible stories, we have to be careful to not pick and choose which parts of the Jesus story or Jesus himself that we'll take or leave aside. And that seems especially important to me at Christmas time. It's easy to be festive without having real faith. It's easy to be extra kind to others without really knowing the Christ. It's easy to be drawn to the cute baby Jesus in the manger and overlook or minimize the fact that he came from heaven and that is God. And he reigns over all creation. And he deserves all of our praise. He deserves all of us. It can be easy at Christmas time with all of the happy, jingly, old-timey songs about chestnuts, which I love. It can be easy to forget that heaven's praise of Jesus is majestic beyond words. And Revelation 5 helps us with that, even upon a single reading of it, even not knowing some of the, or many of the details. The majesty and the grandeur and the loftiness of it all is inescapable. Revelation 5 will rock your Christmas world, if I can put it that way. It'll help you get your eyes off of yourself and get your eyes off of that endless to-do list that, well, the, the hours are now few, if you haven't noticed. It'll keep you from compartmentalizing parts of Jesus or trivializing him. That's why we need a passage like Revelation 5 at Christmas time, though we don't think of it as a Christmas passage. And if we take some more time for more than just a quick reading of it, it might even have more use. It might have a greater impact. So let's dig in a bit more. Starting with the strangeness of it. Does it sound strange to your ears when I read it just a few minutes ago? What of this scroll that it talks about with seals that, that need opening? What is or who is the lamb that was slain, that redeems and conquers? 
What about these so-called elders and living creatures and myriads of angels? Well, this is the stuff of what we call apocalyptic literature. It's basically extinct now, but it was a popular genre of religious writing in Bible times. Maybe go back 400 years before Jesus and 100 years after Jesus. That's the heyday of what we call apocalyptic literature, some of which is in our Bible, not all of it. And certainly the book of Revelation is one of those places. Like any style of literature, it has its own unique features and literary rules. It leans heavily on symbolism. Symbolism that's not always immediately obvious to us, but it was fairly obvious to those who first read it. And remember, those are the ones for whom it was first written. And so like the way that you know how to read a comic strip, you don't have to say, what is this? What's going on here? What are these boxes and words? You know because you've been around comic strips enough to know. And so Jews in the centuries leading up to and a little after the birth of Christ, they knew how to read this stuff. It leans on the language that is already found in the Bible, things like living creatures. We know about them from Ezekiel 1. They're throne room angels that look quite scary. Apocalyptic literature also leans on the culture of the day. Again, in this case, first century day. So something like scroll with seven seals on days before books, this is something like a letter, but far more than that. This is something really official. Uh, probably no one in this room still uses a wax seal to seal up a letter. Maybe you do. Probably none of us use seven at a time. That would be opulent. That would be the, the sign of, of someone really big in this document being really, 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 yes, I think I counted seven, really important. <laughs> and so the one who has to break the seals on this scroll and open the scroll is the one who has the right to open it and to enact it and to accomplish it, whatever's inside. And so a scroll with seven seals, this one here in Revelation 5, is nothing less than God's plan to save and to judge this world. The one who opens the scroll is the one who has the right and the power and the wisdom and the purity to enact God's plan and to carry it out to completion for all humanity. And here's where we need to read a little bit more in Revelation 5, because this scroll and its seals business played out in a dramatic way in the passage before what I just read a little bit ago. So we read verses 9 and following, these songs of heaven. But let's back up, would you, with me? If you have a Bible or on the screens, just look. Here are verses 1 through 4 of this great chapter. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, 
because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So now as we begin to work our way through this chapter from top to bottom, we can think of it as a heavenly drama played out in three different movements. And I just read the first. We could call it or label it the need for one worthy. The need for one worthy. There's a great need for one who is worthy and can open the scroll and can accomplish what's in it. If the scroll is nothing less than the very plan of God for humanity, that's everything. It's everything. It's the righting of wrongs. It's the straightening of the crooked. It's the grace and mercy of God extended to sinners who believe It's even the minute-by-minute orchestration of events in this seemingly chaotic world. Now, we know where this is going. We've already read the song. Like we Christians uh, sometimes joke that when we ask our kids any religious question, they know that the answer is always Jesus, right? They make that joke. We we, kind of laugh about that. And In this case, it is indeed Jesus. Jesus, we know that. But let the drama play out. Feel the suspense. An angel called out to all humanity. He called on all of heaven and all of earth, asking who is worthy to fix this thing? Who is worthy to finish God's plan? Who is worthy to bring it to completion? Who is worthy to do God's will? Who is worthy to fix what's broken, who's righteous enough to be this world's final and only and ultimate judge, who's powerful enough to overthrow every bit of wickedness, even Satan and his minions. And there was silence. Verse 3, no one in heaven nor on the earth was worthy. No one among the angelic beings, these fierce creatures who don't sin, they obey. At least those before the throne room of God. Couldn't we get the strongest one of them to do something? Wouldn't one of them say, I'll give it a go? No, none did. Certainly not among fallen sinful humanity would we ever find the one who is worthy. No one was worthy. So feel the tension there. You might try to ignore the tension, thinking, well, this world's pretty good. I'm sure we're getting a little bit better. It was a bad month for the stock market and all, but I mean, it'll pick up. Or you may decide to put your trust in relatively weak and fleeting things and people. This president, or the next one, or Congress, if you're really courageous, or a border wall, or tax cuts, or national health care, or tuition for everyone, or the UN, or just the idea of peace. Well, you're fooling yourself if you don't see that some of our greatest moments as a humanity, 
have been a bit like straightening the chairs on the deck of the Titanic. That's a little overstated, but not much. We're in trouble. We need a fix. And the way forward, the true way forward, the path to real hope, well, it doesn't begin by ignoring how bad things are or by putting our hope in things that are not worthy. Take a moment this Christmas Eve, before you get back to the eggnog, before you open you know, one present this evening before bed and then a lot in the morning, and you rightly smile, just, just take a, a, a little bit this evening and weep with John. The one who got this vision and wrote it down for us, he wept loudly because no one was found worthy to enact God's plan. Let that sink in what it would mean. No final justice, no heaven, no grace, no hope and expectation beyond this life in this world. You may, like John Lennon, try to imagine no heaven above, no hell below. People living for today. Imagine, he said, nothing to kill for, nothing to die for. No religion. People living life in peace. He said, imagine no greed or hunger and people sharing the world. He said, you may say I'm a dreamer. And I say, yeah, John Lennon. That's crazy. It doesn't just happen. It doesn't happen because you imagine it. Your imagination is not worthy. We'll never move past Pollyanna imagination or pessimistic despair if we don't first see how massive and universal the problem is without Jesus. Let's read on. Verses 5 through 7. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him, God, who was seated on the throne. So now, secondly, the one who alone is worthy. We have a need for one who is worthy. John wept because no one was worthy, but then he learns there is one who alone is worthy. We can't get into all the details of the imagery here. There are all kinds of symbols that we can't unpack in the short time we have. But we should give our primary attention to the lamb and the things said about the lamb because obviously he is what is most central and most important in this. And notice he is worthy because of who he is and what he has done. Who is he? Verse 5 says, He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, you've got to know your Bible a bit to know what that's talking about. That's Genesis 49. There, God promised through Jacob that in his son Judah, through that line, there would one day come a, a, a lion-like 
ruler of the nations, and they would obey him. They would follow him. They would, they would do what's right. And the scepter, his rule, it would never end. It would never go out of his hand. So we, we learn here that this one who is worthy didn't come out of nowhere. He was also the promised one. It was all of God's plan long ago. He's also the root of David. Well, this is Isaiah 11, verse 1. You see, Jesus is son of Abraham. Jesus is the offspring of Judah. He's also a son of David. And that's really important in the interconnectedness of the Bible, which we won't get into tonight. But because he is the one that was promised many times in many different ways long ago, now he has come. He's triumphed, and he can take the scroll and open its seals, and he does. And John sees it. The one who writes this says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. This is classic apocalyptic literature here. How is a slain lamb standing? That doesn't happen. Well, I know, but it's, it's painting pictures for us. This is, this is like sci-fi poetry, if you like. And we Christians know that the slain lamb is nothing less than Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. It looks back to Old Testament Bible that came before God was, for a long time, talking about how there's a need for a substitute and a need for blood, and we need someone to die in our place. And Jesus is that final one, the real one. And because he's not just one who died, but one who was raised, he's the lamb standing as though he was slain. Of course, this is no ordinary lamb. It gets Downright freaky, verse 6. Seven horns, seven eyes. The seven eyes are the spirits of God sent out into the world. He sees all. He's fierce all around. You don't want to mess with this lion-like lamb with seven horns. And on that basis, shall we read on? Back where we started before, verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. We'll just read a verse of it. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people from, for God from every tribe and language, and people, and nation. There is indeed need for one who is worthy. There is indeed one alone who is worthy. Now thirdly, praise to him who is worthy. All of heaven erupts in loud, and dare we say boisterous praise, I know when most of us, even if you like harps, we think harps, oh, that's pleasant. That'd be nice if, you know, I was so rich, I could take naps to a harp. <laughs> but think of harps in Bible times among the Jews. It's probably closer to, like, banjos. I mean, who smiles when they're playing a banjo? No one. 
It's cheery. It's celebration. You got that one psalm, I think it's in the 130s, where the people of Israel are in captivity and, and the Babylonians say, why don't you play us one of those great Israelite joyful songs? And they say, how can we? We're in a foreign land. We hung up our harps. Hung up their harps, their, their banjos. It's a new song that they sing. Something big has happened. This is earth shattering. This is eternity changing. He's worthy, not just for who he is, but what he's done. He was slain, and in his death, he ransomed people for God. That is, he, he made their payment. He paid their bill. He set them free, but not free to go on their own, free to come back home and to be with God forever. To join angels and saints from long ago around the throne in giving praise to God. So notice that this is a responsive kind of song, isn't it? God did something, and heaven responds in praise. It's a lofty and loud song, isn't it? Thousands and thousands, myriads and myriads of angels. I don't know what that sounds like, but it's got to be even louder than what we heard today, which was great. They sang with a loud voice. Notice the, the piling on of accolades and attributes. Power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. Notice how it's expansive. If you look carefully at what is going on here in Revelation 5, you see a, a progression. If you look down, if you have a Bible with you, verse 8 shows us four creatures and 24 elders before the throne, right in front of it. And then living creatures and elders and many angels, myriads and myriads of them, they are around the throne. It's spreading. And, and then verse 13, every creature everywhere is praising God. So are you in? You want to go there? Where will you be found in the end? For Christians... Hear this advice from George Whitfield. Lift up your hearts frequently towards the mansions of eternal bliss with an eye of faith. Like the departed sitting saints solacing themselves in eternal joys with unspeakable comfort. Looking back on their past sufferings and self-denials as so many glorious means which exalted them to such a crown Hark, he says, methinks I hear them chanting their everlasting hallelujahs and spending an eternal day in echoing forth triumphant songs of joy. And do you not long, my brethren, to join this heavenly choir? But you may not be there. I mean, I just have to be real honest here. When it says everyone everywhere... It's everyone everywhere that God has redeemed. It's everyone everywhere who has put their hope in Christ. I began the service by reading from John 1, and the kids sang it. He came to his own, his own didn't receive him, and they weren't children of God. But to those who did receive him, who believed on his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Now you might say at some point in this talk, well, 
who's being overly optimistic now, Ryan? Huh? Who's, uh, who's wanting to be the escapist now? You might understandably so. Say, Ryan, uh, are you saying that since Jesus was born, or even 30 years later or so when he died and presumably was raised, uh, are you saying this world's all fixed? Have you not clicked on the news? Have you not read a newspaper any time recently? And we'd have to just say, oh, I get it. It's a kind of a now and not yet thing. It's already and yet more is to come. Jesus is at work and he will in the end fix it all. We've got the window into heaven and the eternal plan of God from the book of Revelation. We know where this thing's going. We know it may take a long time more or not, but it's coming. And much has already been done by Jesus who sits on the throne and reigns as he opens his scroll bit by bit and usually one life at a time usually one life at a time so I ask you again if you're not a Christian where are you going to be? will you be around the throne? do you want to go there? do you know this lamb who was slain? do you believe he was slain for your sins because he loves you? I pray you would know that. For all of us here, I think we can say, Revelation 5 gives us heaven's take on the Jesus story. You want to know what heaven thinks of Jesus? We know. By God's grace, he pulled back the curtain for just a little bit to see the drama unfold in heaven. No one is worthy. That's a big problem. But there was one who alone is worthy because of who he is and what he did. And he has the scroll. He sits on the throne. He's unfolding it day by day. So may there be great, loud, lofty, intricate, thoughtful, passionate, expansive and spreading praise for him who alone is worthy. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray for those with us who don't know Jesus in the ways that we're talking. We understand we all have been there. None of us are born believing him, let alone wanting more and more to love him and worship him. So we pray that you'd give eyes to see for those who don't yet see him. We pray, Lord, that as Christians we would more and more live in light of his glorious resurrection and ascension and present reign. We thank you for a Savior who not only came, who not only was humble, who not only died for sins, but now reigns over all creation. Lord, forgive us when we doubt that he does. Forgive us, Lord, when we think we could do it better. There is none worthy but you, Lord Jesus. And we pray in your name. Amen.